The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Canada's per capita growth has been negative three out of the last four quarters, says Perrin Beattie, the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. He adds, Canada needs to do more to attract investment, a sentiment that was recently shared by a panel of experts for Conversations Live about economic reconciliation. Heisla Chief Counselor Crystal Smith said, First Nations hold the key to the country's economic future. It is a belief held by Indigenous businessman Chris Sankey who says, We cannot afford to obstruct BC's energy sector any longer. In an op-ed for the Vancouver Sun, Sankey said, The chilling effect on the investment landscape of our region and of Canada in general has been terrible. Moving forward, Sankey is looking to LNG to generate jobs and economic growth. He says more than a billion dollars in Indigenous procurement spending and benefits have already been negotiated with Coastal GasLink, Kitimat LNG, and Wood Fiber LNG. And should the Heisla make the final investment decision on Cedar LNG, the opportunities will continue to grow for everyone, says Sankey. Not just First Nations, everyone. I invited Chris Sankey to join me for a conversation that matters about economic reconciliation and how it can reverse Canada's sinking attractiveness to investors. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. Chris, is the path to opening up or uh, reestablishing Canada's uh, reputation as a place to invest, is it through cooperation and partnerships with First Nations? 100%. Uh, I think the most important thing that we could do as nations is align. Uh, when we have alignment uh, between the communities, impacted communities and our communities, we essentially de-risk the project for it. And when I talk about de-risking, I, I mean our ability to grow our own timber, uh, uh, grow our own capacity, have an alignment within the community of the a service needs determination. I think long past is gone when people just want to um, propose projects. We have to actually talk about how do we grow our community while we're looking at these major multi-billion dollar initiatives. Uh, we have to make sure that um, in order to be successful uh, in the energy game, that in the, over the next span of 40 years, we have to make sure that we have the expertise, the capacity, the education, the training, employment that will be intergenerational knowledge transfer while we look to have intergenerational wealth transfer i I think alignment is the key word here today Um, the key word alignment equals de-risking equals investment so how do companies go about best working with first nations to make sure that what they're proposing is uh, in sync with uh, Indigenous values, uh, Indigenous culture, Indigenous language, um, so that uh, that we don't run into some of these situations where we're going, well, hang on a second, I think that what you're trying to do is to move this uh, and, and only make us as a name-only partner. Well, it depends. I mean, every, not one shoe fits all. Uh, I think it's important that the communities, sorry, it's important that industry come visit our communities, which I think they have done a way better job 
at doing and getting to know who we are as Indigenous people to the land because our land is our identity. And that's who we are as a people. They want to make sure that when a proponent is coming to the community, they get to know the community's needs and wants. So that, again, I go back to making sure that our voices are heard, our elders' voices are heard, our cultural awareness is heard, our language, our arts are, and then we start to move into the opportunities to make sure that the community's um, needs are met when it comes to infrastructure, health, education, language, arts, all of those things encompass who we are as a people. When you take that knowledge and you bridge it with technology, you bridge it with industry knowledge, you form an incredible relationship where we've got to know one another across the table. Now, it's not always going to be smooth, but at the end of the day, we build that relationship, whether we agree, disagree, at the end of the day, we're going to move forward together. And it's important that industry sit down, whether it's going to be with chief and council, the hereditary, the rec dev, it will encompass a solution into a path forward for investment. Who better to approach uh, than the people whose territories are going to be impacted by potential development? Who better to know every crook and cranny in the ocean, in the land? When we come together under one roof and have a meeting of the minds, some thought leadership and understanding what we're about to embark. I think that is a better path forward. And on top of that, we could develop policy together so that it encompasses, encompasses who we are as Indigenous people to the land while looking to build these projects. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So over the last couple of years, of course, uh, we have seen a tremendous number of changes. Uh, you know, we can go all the way back to Delgamook, uh, which saw us starting to move in this direction. Silcoteen back in 2014 was a major uh, uh, landmark case that, that brought us forward and started to give definition around title and what, what title meant. Um, and then in the last couple of years, uh, the governments of Canada and British Columbia introduced UNDRIP uh, policies. But I'm not entirely convinced that UNDRIP uh, actually clears things up. In some ways, it almost seems to muddy the waters. So is one of our biggest challenges right now being able to get the provincial and federal governments on side so that they actually are helping to streamline the process rather than creating regulations that get in the way? Look, Canada has a reputation, right? well, I should say, BC and Canada has a reputation of getting in their own way. Uh, you are correct that it, it could be, it, when you start to muddy the waters with all of these um, um, measures on how we move forward, the long list of action items to take place to meet under it, I don't see it really being implemented for another 15, 20 years. So I think it's important that uh, when we sit down with government, that the community representation to the proposed project in the area and region, those First Nations should be at the table talking about a path forward. So let's, I mean, let's be honest here, like prior to UNDRIP, and again, I'm not against UNDRIP. I just, it was just very unclear to me when it first came out. Prior to us engaging in UNDRIP, we were already doing 
about 85 to 90% of the asks of what that legislation would look like, which we call free prior informed consent. And so we were already doing a lot of that in our, in our region anyway. Um, but like I said, I think what I find where things get confusing is when we have the likes of city urban or city organizations interfering in this process. And I, I, I make no bones about it. I, I don't think it's right that uh, organizations in Vancouver that are indigenous led uh, has a right to talk about the things or projects that are being proposed in our backyard. It, it, they, and I think what's happened here is that the combination of media and government and meeting with the wrong people uh, has caused a lot of backlash in the past to get anything built. Um, when you take a look what was happening with all of our proposed projects here, here in British Columbia, where did the vast majority of the pushback came? It came from Vancouver. It came from Toronto. It came from all the cities. And what frustrated so many of our Indigenous people is that they don't live here. And the the fact that we had uh, organizations like UBCIC and these other individuals, uh, sorry, other organizations speaking on our behalf regarding UNDRIP, they completely missed the mark when it came to the actual community's needs and wants and a path forward. We were already working with our hereditary in our in our community of local arms. We had people or have people that are a part of our hereditary system and hold high ranking names that are elected to our council. So I think going back, we have to realize that when we are going to sit across from one another to negotiate these opportunities, the first point of contact, you should go find out who the who the chief and council is or the mayor and council. Uh, understand that process and protocol. Do they involve their hereditary? And sit down with that community. I think the uh, the government government needs to stop meeting with um, city organizations. I I really believe that because I I hear it a significant amount in in my uh, in my, the work that I do that they're getting very frustrated with uh, these urban organizations speaking on our behalf and then trying to shut down the energy sector. I mean, what are we going to do, Seward? Like, if you take away oil and gas, even those organizations wouldn't be able to survive. You just wouldn't, without oil and gas, there is no economy. There is no fishing. There is no forestry. There is no infrastructure. There is no mining. There is no health and education. Everything we encompass requires hydrocarbons, oil and gas. And what I'm learning now in this, the work that we're doing is the combination of climate technology and situ processes that are going to eliminate emissions, you know, the use of deal bit, eliminate emissions of gas, uh, creating a hydro, hydrogen as a clean fuel through technology. You know, this, this nonsense that we think we're getting away from oil and gas is just never going to happen. And I want to be really clear here. People keep saying not in my lifetime. No, I, I, let's be honest here. With We're never getting rid of oil and gas. My clothing, my watch, my phone, my headsets, the, the latest and best uh, medical saving instruments require hydrogen, uh, sorry, hydro, uh, yeah, hydrocarbons and minerals. And without that, 
we will not have the quality of life that we have today. And we need to understand this. And the fact that we exist, we give off 1,000 British thermal units, which are emissions, every day that we're alive. You could eliminate all of the oil and gas. That's still not going to change anything when it comes to our emission rates. In fact, um, over the last eight years, we went from 1.2% total global emissions. Now we're at 1.6. At one point, it was 1.8. It's come down. Not a single major project has been built. So how could you blame that on the energy sector? When we look at China, where they're, where they're building coal plants at a record pace to keep up with the demand of energy, oil demand has gone up, not down. And every time, and I, I wrote this in an op-ed, and every time an EV is built, oil demand goes up. And it actually co it costs the economy five times the barrel of oil to make an electric vehicle. Um, and it, as well as you got to drive 120,000 kilometers to break even to be carbon neutral. That's every day. And the battery itself, it, it, it actually burns out within about eight years of owning that vehicle. Those are the stats that I learned through speaking and listening to people like Adam Watrous and Scotia Watrous uh, in this sector. So we got to be smart about this. I, it's about, yes, let's get rid of, I'm, I'm totally on side, let's get rid of bad emissions. How do we do that? Technology. We have to have a slow progression of responsible, responsible management of reducing harmful fuels, fuels into the atmosphere. And I, and I strongly believe that it's the technology sector in relationship with industry and First Nation-led projects is going to solve that challenge that we face today with regards to emissions rate. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So here's another point that uh, came up the other day, and it was that the media complicates things because uh, the process towards economic reconciliation and building major projects in Canada is very complex, and this environment is only looking for simple explanations. And what it tends to do is focus in on conflict. And so it's very easy to find conflict, whether or not it's from an environmental uh, organization or a uh, combination of First Nations that maybe don't agree on uh, the best steps forward on a project to point to that disagreement rather than say, okay, what are the merits of this? How do we work our way through it? How do we make that happen? Are you finding that yourself? Yeah, we, I mean, look, over the last 15 years or so that I've been involved in, I've been involved in this game, every time industry and First Nation find a solution to the problem, the environmental groups and these city organizations, these NGOs find a problem for that solution. And it never ends. It, it, and it will never end until the alignment happens with the indigenous communities along the impacted routes of, of the energy corridor or the economic corridor to Tidewater. Until that alignment happens, these individuals will continue to get, get into the media and make zero sense. I mean, I, I mean, we cannot tolerate this anymore as a province, as a country. 
We have to get our clean energy out to the world. We are not doing anybody around the world any justice by not meeting our obligations to bring down emissions globally. And if we continue to block these opportunities for Canada, our Indigenous communities will continue to struggle and that struggle is called poverty. Our communities don't want to rely on the government anymore. We need to be able to move forward so we can build these projects to our standards, partnership with industry and cultural knowledge, so that we could finally say to the rest of the world, we are global players right in our backyard. Indigenous people historically love to stay in the territory they're from, but because we don't have the opportunity like the rest of the Canadian population, most of our people always, like myself included, always had to leave the community for opportunities to get a job. So now that we're here at the table, at the at the head table, we now have a seat, a say in ownership. And now is the opportunity for our communities to align. And there's a, I have an op-ed coming out about the loan guarantee program, but that's a whole nother conversation you and I could have, but that loan guarantee program is gonna ignite the long overdue relationship between the Simshian, the Haida, the Nishka, the Haiza, the, uh, the Wet'suwet'en, the Kariusikani, all the way through the Treaty 8 Northeast BC to Treaty 8 Alberta. This is going to ignite an opportunity to finally bring our communities together through an economic corridor. Well, actually, you anticipated exactly where I wanted to go, which was the loan guarantee program. How does that then start to change the equation? Well, we finally are able to get access to capital. If, I mean, historically, Indigenous communities never had that amount of capital at their disposal. Now, it, for us, we, we've been pretty blessed. We have ownership in Trigon, which used to be a Ridley Coal Terminal. We own equity in that. We have a throughput with the port for per container. Uh, we're buying up commercial land and real estate. We have a tr uh, trucking business, a ferry businesses, and we're buying up real estate. And that generates revenue. We have a forest license that generates revenue that we can leverage off of. But historically, when we're talking these multi-billion dollar projects, Indigenous communities didn't have the access to the capital required to be a competitor when they're sitting across from industry. And with that loan guarantee program, that makes us that much more competitive uh, so that Canada can be an energy powerhouse by partnering with First Nations, because now we have the financial capabilities to be a global player with that loan guarantee program. However, however, one more thing is that the feds were looking to exclude oil and gas investment, which is a massive mistake. If you want to talk about economic reconciliation and our right to a sovereign nation, our right to a self-determination nation, they should not be dictating what we can and cannot invest in. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Well, uh, if you're able to de-risk, you still run into a, a wide range of environmental considerations. Uh, how much leverage do First Nations partners have in being able to move forward a process that maybe companies that are trying to go it alone 
don't stand a chance with. Well, you, first of all, companies will never stand a chance if you don't re retain a social license from First Nation. I mean, who again, I'm going to keep going back to it. Who better to part than the impacted First Nation to the territory to which you want to build on? What I'm finding now, Stuart, in my travels is that industry not only just wants to propose the project, what they want to do is actually invest in our stewardship, our fisheries department, about looking at how we could best protect sensitive ecosystems uh, with not just uh, the transfer of, of uh, knowledge in the, in, in, in the energy industry, but with the transfer of our culture, our knowledge back to industry. So it, it just, it makes a perfect fit. And then you add um, clean technology in the mix. It's even better story. It's a, it's a nation builder. And then we start to bring our communities together and that's what de-risks the project. Again, you go back to saying to the community, what are your needs? and sit down and have those tough discussions and don't shy away from talking about oil and gas and hydrogen and don't shy away from talking about money because without it we can't build critical infrastructure so here's an interesting point uh where you are right now there's a tremendous amount of opportunity that's available to you you could go 150 200 kilometers away and there would be a first nation that is not sitting on a natural resource or an opportunity yeah. like that how important is it for industry and First Nations like yours to be able to say, this isn't just for us. We also need to bring in our, our neighboring nations to be a part of this. Look, I've always said that the pot is big enough to share and that there are First Nations along their economic corridor that don't are not in a situation like our community of Lams. They're not blessed in that area. However, they are blessed with the knowledge of how they take care of the land. So how can we help those communities? And I, I, I can't speak for the nations, but what I can say is part of my job with the Simshion Roundtable is to invite nations down to break bread and looking at ways we could help strengthen their economy. And it would be up to the leadership, the leadership dialogue, and but getting them in the room to talk about what their community needs are and maybe how we could help them along to be a part of this economic engine to somehow work out a deal in hopes that they could get a revenue sharing agreement so they could have some revenue back so they could uh, build capacity in their stewardship departments, build capacity in their forestry departments, build capacity in their administration departments, and then, of course, build critical infrastructure. I, I really strongly believe that, Stuart, that once the leaders get in a room, those solutions could be solved at a leadership table, leadership to leadership dialogue. I, and I, I'm, I'll always be a strong proponent of that because we have so many, so many communities that just don't have access to the resources that most of our communities do when we talk about inland communities or communities that are eight hours away from Prince George or so far isolated that they have no access to the knowledge or the understanding of how these mega projects move forward because they need a partnership to help build capacity. Let's not forget about these communities. Let's not forget about those people in need because we, we are the solution. If we could sit down and have those difficult conversations and move forward together, we could help these other communities succeed. They need, we all need to come together as one community. 
Well, Chris, I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be an awful lot of conversations. Many of them uh, will be difficult, uh, but that's how we move forward. And uh, this is only just one of many that uh, you and I are going to continue to have as we move forward. Thanks for your uh, time today. Thank you, Stuart. That was a pleasure. Thank you for listening, and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.